When people in the Midlands want to talk, they talk to Will Faulkner. This is live and this is what happens. So, over here. Peter Dunn did this. He sabotaged me. Definitely. All right. What's on the front pages today? John Bruton is pictured on the front of the Irish Times as it says, warm cross-party tributes are being paid to the former Taoiseach. On the front of the Irish Daily Star, a true patriot, friends and former rivals pay tribute to ex-Taoiseach. Front of the Irish Independent as well. Former Taoiseach John Bruton, who has died at the age of 76. He was a man of integrity who leaves decency and a legacy of many firsts in Irish politics. Now, the main headlines on those papers, though, in the case of the Irish Independent, the places where visiting a GP is most expensive. And if you are living in the Midlands, we're very much mid-table, as you would expect. In County Leash, it's somewhere between uh, €40 and €65. If you are living in Westmeath and Offaly, it's typically coming in at €60 for a GP visit. So if you're paying more than that, you can argue on the next time you go in. I think the big challenge, though, is finding a practice that takes on new patients. And unfortunately, it's a sign of the times, a growing population and yet not enough doctors coming in to make the difference. Moving on to the Irish Times. More concern raised by Surgeries Review. This story relates to Temple Street Children's Hospital, where it appears there have been... Uh, spinal surgeries delayed in an additional 17 cases. So there you go, two national papers, two stories about the health service that are certainly unflattering. Let's go inside, though, and see what good news there is. And there is some, I'm glad to say. Flow Gas, which is one of the big energy providers in this country, it is cutting its costs by as much as 25%, depending on whether you are a domestic or a business customer, whether you are taking gas or electricity. But if you are Mr. and Mrs. Average, the saving shall be €700. Euro. Now, when you factor in that Energia, uh, Board uh, Gosh, and Electric Ireland, among others, the new guy on the block as well, uh, has all cut down on pricing. They have all cut over the last couple of weeks. The impact will be in March. Most of them did not uh, apply an immediate cut. There was a delay of a couple of weeks. But the direction of travel is downwards and hopefully there's still some room to go. Now... Ishka Aaron is announcing 700 new jobs and this is the largest recruitment campaign taken by the organisation to date. Bear in mind, Ishka Aaron used to be known as Irish Water. It has taken over 
for the last 10 years all of the management of public water services that were previously delivered by 31 local authorities. The jobs they're looking for are frontline operations, science and engineering, administrative, communications, management and IT positions and they expect to recruit imminently on these. So if you are interested in working for Ishka Aaron or Irish Water if you prefer, go on to water.ie forward slash careers. 700 positions there. But maybe you want to be your own boss. The Irish Times Online... If you're an Irish Times subscriber, they have an excellent guide today to starting up your own business. And whether it was maybe a New Year's resolution or whether you just had a falling out with the boss yesterday and you've decided now is the time to go it alone, they take you through raising the finance. They take you through what the common pitfalls are that will see a small business fail in its first year. And unfortunately, there is a high failure rate. And the moral of the story, of course, is the more you fail, keep trying. And they ultimately recommend your local Leo, the enterprise office by Leash, Offaly, Westmeath, County Councils, whichever is your nearest. That's where there's expertise available, low-cost courses, and plenty of people who've been there, done that, bought the T-shirt, and who can demystify how it all works. How much does your smartwatch know about you? The question is probed in the Irish Times today, where... Remember, we've had these devices on our wrists for six, seven years now, maybe more in the case of some of the Garmin devices. And eventually, they're going to introduce even more measurements. So at the moment, it'll typically track your heart rate, your step count. But you're going to see ECGs, and indeed the Apple Watch already has those, blood pressure monitoring, glucose levels, So it's not just going to be a fitness tracker, it'll be a health tracker. And the question is, how much do you want big tech to know about you? And it depends on your view of the world. If you believe in a utopia, then these tech companies are going to create databases which will inform government health policy and it'll be a good thing. Um, If you're maybe a dystopian person in your outlook then they're going to sell your information to insurance companies who will be able to charge you extra if they spot that your health is in decline. So it depends on your point of view and your attitude to privacy, but it's worth checking how much information and how anonymized is the information being shared by your watch. The Irish Examiner tells us today how RTE is going to spend €80,000 to dub episodes of Peppa Pig and Thomas the Tank Engine in Irish. And they say this is the most cost-effective way to do it, to put it out to tender, and the successful contractor will get a year-long gig paying, uh, being paid rather €80,000. Now, you could argue this is perhaps pointless. Maybe RTE should be creating its own cartoons. But let's face it, if you're a parent, you'll know the kids are going to watch what is popular. And Peppa Pig, like it or not, and Thomas the Tank Engine, like it or not, they are very, very popular. So if we're to promote the Irish language, 
Do we just have to hold the nose and let RTE get on with dubbing Peppa Pig and Thomas the Tank Engine Osquelga? Or is it a waste of money? Where do you stand? A couple of other stories very quickly. Do you remember the Boeing flight earlier this year on which a panel blew off in mid-air and a huge investigation was launched as to whether the Boeing 737 MAX should be grounded. And very little has been reported on it since. Well, the US National Transportation Safety Board yesterday released an initial report, and it seems four of the bolts that were holding on this panel, and the panel, by the way, was just a plug where on some models there would be a door, four of the bolts were missing. So it may not be a design flaw. It may be just to that specific aircraft, this very unusual circumstance happened. And no doubt what will happen from here is the airlines will be instructed to inspect to ensure there are bolts where there are supposed to be bolts in the future. Lots of commentary still about Prince Charles, or should I say King Charles, old habits die hard. King Charles revealed on Monday that he has cancer and is undergoing treatment for it and will be withdrawing from some public duties while this takes place. And yesterday there was much reporting of that and I think the dust has probably settled a bit now and in the Irish Independent, the constitutional questions that arise from Prince Charles not being involved in day-to-day business, if that should happen during the course of his treatment and whether William and indeed Kate Middleton will have to step up. But an interesting point, I didn't know this, Queen Elizabeth, her death was reported as old age at the time and her father had died from cancer, keep that in mind. According to the author Glynis Bradleth, who is a friend of Camilla, by all accounts, Queen Elizabeth died from bone cancer or bone marrow cancer, but it was never formally admitted. So it would appear there's a family history that is not in Charles's favour, unfortunately. Anyway, that's in the Irish Independent today. And the final one for you. If you think we have housing problems in this country, well, how did China, for all of the massive population growth, get around the housing challenge? Well, there's an article online about a new building that was constructed in Qiang Century City, and it is known as the Regent International. You should Google this thing. And it's capable of housing 30,000 people. Just imagine the fire risk there, a single building with 30,000 people. And you never have to go outside if you take an apartment in this building because it has shopping malls, it has barbers, it has hairdressers, it has beauticians, it has everything you could conceivably need under the one roof. And how many stories high it is, it's just bamboozling to see the picture. In fact, the first time I saw this, I thought, hang on, this is AI and a deep fake at work and it's not actually a real building, but it is. So check out Regent International and we could well have a colossus like that here in Ireland at some point in the future if our population keeps growing the way it is. Anyway, I say that tongue in cheek. 
coming up on 26 minutes past nine. And now, still on the agenda this morning, frost and icy stretches forecast as eight counties are given a snow warning. I'll tell you more of what you can expect in the next few days. But our thoughts now turn to the former Taoiseach, John Bruton, who died yesterday after a long illness at the age of 76. And he has been remembered as one of the great intellectual figures in politics. Lee Shoffley, TD, and former Justice Minister Charlie Flanagan describes him as an energetic politician who served as a TD for 35 years. Deputy Flanagan says Mr Bruton's intellect was head and shoulders above anyone else he served with. I first met John Bruton when I was a teenager. He was elected to the Dáil in 1969. My father was in that Dáil and I remember meeting John. He was a young TD. Uh, and over the course of his career, he was, uh, he was energetic. He was gregarious. He never stopped going. Uh, and indeed, my first meeting with him uh, in, in, in uh, the autumn of 69, uh, he was uh, rushing to a meeting, coming from a meeting. Uh, he managed to sign an autograph book that I had and said that he hoped to see me. Uh, in in Dáil Éireann one day uh, and of course he did because uh, he was a senior figure when I was elected to the Dáil in 1987 and, I, and, and that's 37 years ago now uh, and I can say with hand on heart uh, that John Bruton uh, was by far uh, the greatest intellectual figure uh, of my time in Dáil Éireann his intellect uh, head and shoulders above anybody else that I served with, uh, and he was uh, uh, he he was somebody who thought really seriously about politics. He was minister of finance, as people will recall, but he was always very careful to ensure uh, that he acted in a financially prudent way. This was other people's money. This was taxpayers' money. Uh, John Bruton uh, was never going to engage in policies that could be regarded. Uh, as wasteful and he was always very careful in that regard uh, I was speaking to John Bruton recently we were having a chat about things in Ireland about society about changes uh, of course he was deeply interested in Northern Ireland and I was his spokesman in Northern Ireland uh, <clears throat> around the time of the signing of the Good Friday Agreement we were in opposition 98, 99, 2000 uh, I was his spokesman in Northern Ireland I was his chief whip uh, when he first became leader uh, and we did enjoy um, something of an up-and-down relationship. Uh, he was uh, oftentimes very keen uh, that, 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 that you know, everyone uh, in the party uh, would display the active energy that John showed. Uh, so he set very high standards. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it was a deep honour for me uh, to serve with John Bruton. Former Fine Gael Longford Westmead TD Paul McGrath says although John Bruton held traditional values, he was one of the champions behind the divorce referendum. He was a great thinker and a great forward thinker and, and uh, planning and planning ahead and planning uh, for the economy for the future and also on social issues. Uh, it was perhaps a surprise to many people that uh, John Bruton would champion the, the idea of divorce. John, whereas he had very strong traditional views himself, he was able to set that aside and see uh, that divorce was needed in society and he actually championed it and put it through in a referendum. A man that was probably seen as being responsible for swinging the balance in the Irish public on that issue.
John set out uh, <laughs> a very uh, tough tone, if you like, in terms of uh, expecting you to play your part. If John asked you to do something, he expected you to do it and expected you to do it well. Uh, he was a very, very hard worker himself and uh, expected everybody else to come up to that level of, as well. Uh, he uh, was very good at uh, talking about issues and uh, what do you think of this or what do you think of that and how do you think this is going? And it was a frequent visitor to Westmead. Uh, I met him on quite a number of occasions. Uh, some of them uh, perhaps bordering on social, the like of uh, Quebecan races or whatever. Uh, John would come for an evening and uh, enjoy it immensely. Minister of European Affairs Peter Burke says the former Taoiseach launched his campaign in Westmeath in 2011. When he was Taoiseach, uh, I would have been in about sixth class in primary school. So I do remember it um, uh, quite well. But absolutely, back in 2011, when I ran for the doll first uh, he was um, very willing to come down and help and indeed did launch a campaign and actually, which he really loved and you wouldn't think it, uh, he wants to go canvassing. So we picked uh, a few estates in Mullingar at random and we went out canvassing and never forget that a very wintry, wet uh, evening. We're all dressed up in our uh, rain gear and he really enjoyed canvassing, go door to door. And it's amazing when you knock uh, at the door of a housing estate and you have the former Taoiseach standing beside you. The welcome he got was incredible. And he had a very warm place, I think, in people's hearts because whether they agreed or disagreed with him on so many fundamental issues, they knew that he was a man of exceptional integrity, very honest individual, and really wanted to give the country as much as he could from his intellect, uh, from his service. And he, he just really did that. He just really epitomises public service. And you know that's what we need in politics. And I would even say who is not retired yet, uh, obviously, his brother, brother Richard. You know, when he um, stepped back from being a minister, you'd see some people, you know, going into the back benches, giving out and throwing stones. You know, Richard took over chairperson of the Parliamentary Party, set up policy labs for Finnegal, working again in public service. And just a family that's incredible how much they want to give to the state. And junior minister Peter Burke, remembering former Taoiseach John Bruton in that report. Now, a caller has asked... Why has RTE put out for tender on the dubbing of Peppa Pig and Thomas the Tank Engine if the price is decided and published? And also, why not give it to four national schools in the Gweltacht to the tune of €20,000 each? Well, let me tell you more about this tender. It is quite unusual, I agree, where they've more or less positioned the cost of it. It's a year-long contract to dub season nine of Peppa Pig and season two of Thomas and Friends. And season nine of Peppa Pig, for instance, contains 65 episodes and there are 52 on the Thomas season. And the Thomas season has 11-minute episodes. The Peppa has five-minute episodes. So anyway, you're getting a, about 15 hours of dubbing in total. And RTE says the €80,000 quoted is not the final fee or the budget for the project, but indicates, and I'm using inverted commas here, the scale of engagement to interested suppliers and that the total fee will only be determined once the tender process has concluded. Does that make any sense to you? not really plain English. Are they saying you should come in at €80,000? You should come in at above €80,000? Anyway, 
It's a rather unusual way to do business, I think. But leaving aside the tender and the money, is it something you would support RTE doing as a way of getting children interested in the Irish language? There's no denying the popularity of Peppa Pig or indeed the enduring popularity of Thomas the Tank Engine, who has been around a lot longer than Peppa and probably will be a lot long after Peppa. So, are you on board or not? 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. Here's a question that will get you in trouble. Do you keep any sentimental items after a breakup? Because more than a third of people do. Most commonly, photographs, cards, love letters, and jewellery. And of those who hang on, more than half have a keepsake for more than 20 years. Hmm, is it time to ask a question of the other half? What are they storing in the attic that you don't know about? Alan O'Reilly is here from Carlo Weather. Have you any confessions, Alan? Just thinking I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> sensible, sensible man. Emer may be yeah. listening. Anyway, the reason we have invited you to appear on the show is because it's a bit chilly out and word has it uh, via Met Aaron that there are some counties in need of a snow warning. Yes, indeed. So we have a nice day enough today. It is cold this morning. There was a bit of ice around, but good hazy sunshine. And it's going to stay cool today. Um, but then tonight, a band of rain is going to move up from the south. And it's going to bring in a cold easterly wind. Now, as that rain meets the colder air, it will turn to sleet and snow in some parts. Generally, if you draw a line probably from Dublin to Galway, Everything below that is likely to be rain, except for on very high ground. Mm. But it could fall asleep in snow for a time tomorrow morning in the Midlands, especially the North Midlands. And it may even stick for a while in some parts and you will have snow, but then probably turning back to rain. So if you're kind of traveling maybe across the Sea Blue Mountains or some of the higher parts, of the Midlands tomorrow morning, you could be in for a tricky couple of hours. It's very hard to call exactly where that difference between the rain, the sleet and the snow will be. Um, But generally it looks more to be an Ulster and Connacht snow event in terms of lying snow. And even there, more rain will push up tomorrow evening and tomorrow night that will be mostly rain and wash away pretty much most of the slush that might have been left behind. But regardless of what's fallen from the sky tomorrow morning, where you are, it's going to feel bitterly cold. Windchill minus five, minus six degrees. And if it's raining and feeling like minus five degrees, it's pretty unpleasant weather. And is this the last sting of winter or is there more to come? Um, well, it, it is going to be cool into the next few days. Showers of rain at the weekend, but staying cool for a few days to get the heat and build back up again. But it does look like it's probably turn a little bit milder then next week for a little while. But there are still some signs that we could see some high pressure building again to the north of us. So I certainly wouldn't be writing off winter um, after after tomorrow because... February and March, as the last few years have shown us, can really still give us a bit of a sting in the tail oh. when it comes to cold and snow. Can they water? 
Who Will Forget 2018, The Beast from the East. That was March. Yes, exactly. Um, and we've had a couple of those where we've seen cold into March. So, yeah, I wouldn't be writing off the winter and I wouldn't be planning on getting the, uh, the maybe the spring clothes or the summer clothes even just yet, Will. You're going to enjoy this. Uh, eight-year-old Patrick is off school today and he's wondering, will the snow stick enough on the ground tomorrow morning that he will be off school tomorrow as well? I'd say the chances are slim, are slim, unless he's in, a, in an area that's pretty high up. Um, I'd say the chances are slim. But he might see some falling, even if it's not sticking enough to give a snow day. But I think the eight-year-old will be just as disappointed as the teachers. Ah, by the way, I should clarify, eight-year-old Patrick has tonsillitis. That's why he is at home today. And I have a funny feeling he'll be sore tomorrow morning as well. <laughs> Indeed. Take care, Alan. Thank you. All right, well, cheers. Bye-bye. Check out Alan O'Reilly online or Carlo Weather for the latest forecasts. Now, still on the agenda today, Pat Kelly, very popular man from Ballycumber. You may have known him from his time in Pulla as well. He has had a horrendous health journey in recent times and it all started with a pain in his foot. What it blossomed into, we'll tell you, after 11. Plus, as well, in the next 20 minutes, a conversation I wish I had years ago concerning dementia. And I'll share a personal story with you after 10, and hopefully it might just connect with anybody else who is... who is facing somebody who has dementia, and it's a very, very strange and long goodbye um, but that being said, there have never been so many supports, so much understanding in the community, and it's only a question of looking for the help and having that conversation. So that's what we want to encourage you to do, whatever stage of the journey you and your family may be on. Anyway, more on that in around 20 minutes' time. A long-awaited upgrade to a key road through the Midlands might finally receive funding this year. Investment for the N4 project from Mullingar to Ruski had been pulled in 2022 due to pressures on the capital funding budget. And there has been a campaign ever since to have the money reinstated. So it is due to be part of Transport Infrastructure Ireland's road announcements for 2024. Again, an investment of €2 million is expected. Senator Michal Carragy has been telling Midlands 103's Cameron Clark that he's not sure if €2 million will be enough. My understanding that there's going to be an allocation in the region of €2 million plus uh, to the project, which will mean that it can continue to... And the next phase, uh, which is, you know, looking at design and an environmental impact on the emerging and um, preferred routes, which haven't been um, announced yet. So it, it's very, very positive from where we were a number of months ago. You said an allocation of two million is the, the rumoured amount that's said to be going towards the project. Do you feel that'll be enough to get it to the stage it needs to be at? 
Um, far from from discussing it with you know the you know the Rose Office and would have been keeping in regular contact. I know figuring the reason it's three million would have been a preferred, but um, I, I wait until I see it on paper. As you said, there are just r- r- rumored amounts, but um, I'm, I'm sure that there'll be the significant funding put in place and enough to, as I say, progress it uh, through phase three over the next um, twelve months. I know we won't see as uh, the work starting, you know, probably until the latter half. Uh, of this year on it, but I think it's important that um, you know the project uh, is still alive and moving forward. There have been significant road accidents on on that stretch of road over the last 20 years, over 20 fatalities, another 30 odd extremely serious accidents, and up on 250 other accidents, and that's only over the last so 20 year period since this, this project uh, really started. And they're they're unacceptable. I mean, a lot of you know the EU regulations coming forward to reduce um, fatalities on our major national routes. You know they want to see a, a centre barrier um, on on roads, so either a three or a four uh, carriageway road with a with a central barrier reduces significantly uh, the fatalities on the roads. So up to ninety percent of fatalities are head-on collisions, and putting that in place will, as I say, uh, reduce that uh, significantly. That's Senator Micheál Carragy and that budget question, I suspect, won't go away. We'll await the formal announcement from Transport Infrastructure Ireland as to whether €2 million will be provided or maybe even a higher amount. And on the subject of road safety, Gorthy have contacted us today. They want to renew their appeal for information on last week's tragic crash in Carlow which killed three young people, including Katie Graham from County Leash, along with Daryl Colbert and Michael Kelly. And it was a single vehicle collision at half past 11 on the N80 at Lock, which is on the Wexford Road as you leave Carlow. And it happened on Wednesday night last. And unfortunately, a fourth person was injured and remains in hospital in the matter in Dublin. So the appeal from Gorthy, if you were on the road, if you saw something that may assist their investigation, or indeed if you were just passively driving but captured dash cam footage and you still have that footage, they would be eager to examine it. And again, the Gorthy in Carlo are investigating, but you can contact any Gartha station with information that may be relevant. Now, back to your texts and your comments. Um, Will, Peppa Pig has nothing to do with Irish culture, nor does Thomas the Tank Engine. If RTE is to create content in the Irish language, then it should take care of the animation and story as well, not just borrow from American or British content. Do you agree with that? Because it will mean upping the budget. You won't do it for €80,000 for two seasons of a cartoon. You will need vastly more. Uh, and maybe that is what we want a public service broadcaster to do. And in that case, it may be worth dipping deeper into the pocket. But I think those are the sort of questions that RTE and us as the people who will fund RTE have to grapple with in the months ahead if there is to be any true and meaningful reform. Good morning. Now, still to talk about today. The man who, in 2019, developed a pain in his foot 
and his health journey since would boggle the mind. Also, some good news about our shopping habits here in the Midlands and reasons to be optimistic about the economy this year. Peter Dunn gets active in his couch to marathon in, well, actually, it's had a rather big setback. We don't know how long it's going to take now. More details after 11. When you call 0818 300 103 is my number, you can text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. You've been hearing a lot about the HSE's Understand Together campaign in recent weeks, but I want to share with you a personal story this morning. And it's something that has taken me a very long time to come to terms with. But my dad has dementia and he would have been and still is my hero in so many ways. And I've watched and with my wife, Alex, pretty much watched alone because I'm an only child. I've seen the person I knew change and initially become forgetful and then become frustrated where many of the things he loved to do, such as reading or watching television, he could no longer enjoy because his memory was letting him down. And as that progressed and no doubt was hastened by the COVID lockdown, he had a fall and he broke his hip and he eventually, with a very difficult family decision, ended up in a nursing home. And hello to everybody in Escarie Nursing Home in Clara. They do fantastic work. But I wish I had talked to somebody earlier about this to find out what sort of support and guidance and help, not just for Dad, but for all of us, could be available. And so I want you to meet a lady who is available at the end of a phone, should you need her, and she is Joanne Horrigan. She is a dementia advisor for the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. Joanne, good morning. Good morning, Will. How are you? And I know we were talking earlier and you said quite a lot of people remark how they wish they had called you sooner. So maybe you'd tell us what you can do. Yeah, so the Dementia Advisory Service is an initiative um, taken out by the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland and we now thankfully have a dementia advisor in every county. So it's a free and confidential service um, and it's an information and signposting, uh, be it pre-diagnosis if you're concerned about memory loss or after a diagnosis. Um, It can be the person living with dementia themselves or a family member um, and it's to connect them in with local things available and like support groups, cafes, um, daycare centres, home care and public health nurses, GPs, everything, the whole journey process about getting a diagnosis or living with dementia. And it is a journey. I recall last year talking to somebody who was earlier in that journey and found there were some people reacting very strangely, friends, family members, those who maybe lacked the vocabulary or felt uncomfortable about having a conversation. What advice do you give around that? Well, knowledge is power in in every topic of different things and 
I think people, there's a little bit of a stigma, unfortunately, attached to it. So people maybe unintentionally don't know what to do. Um, they might just think by not talking about it and pretending it's not happening, you know, might make it go away. But that's what we're trying to enforce is that people do talk about it. And even if someone gets a diagnosis that as a community, we make it easy for them to be able to reach out for help and speak about this. Um, because, you know, it, it, it's there's 64,000 people now in Ireland uh, with dementia. And for every person that has a diagnosis, there's family members involved. So if you think about the broader scale of it, there's probably about half a million people that have dementia now in their lives. Mm. Um, so, you know, community is the most important thing we have. And making that connection and interaction in the community to make us um, a safe place for someone with a diagnosis, build the awareness and understanding of what dementia actually is. Because there's, you know, there's Alzheimer's, vascular dementia, Lewy body. There's younger onset dementias now. Um, and knowing how you can make the community uh, an easier place for someone with a diagnosis to be living in. Well, I remember with Dad, so many businesses, he would call into them and I'm not sure how often he may have gone in and, and maybe had similar conversations again and again. Fitzpatrick's yeah. garage in Kildare, he used to love going in, kicking tyres, so to speak. And generally speaking, they were very patient and accommodating. And I suppose that's a thought for retail and, and businesses generally is how best to be welcoming, be understanding of people in the community who have dementia. Yeah, so it's just simple changes. Um, so the likes of businesses, services, clubs that are out there, that they're more dementia inclusive. Um, so there is dementia awareness training. Um, you can get the link on understandtogether.ie website. Um, and it's taking things into consideration for your premises. Is it accessible? Is the lighting suitable? Is signage clear? Um, you know, do your staff know to be kind and patient with someone? You know, if they're trying to count up their money or they might be walking around looking for things and, and you know, you, you notice there's there's something just not right or hmm. displaying the National Dementia Inclusive uh, community symbol um, that you can guess. This is part of the campaign. You you can get a toolkit for your your business, and um, there's a sticker in it that you can display, and then people know that you support and you're in solidarity with people with a diagnosis and their families. Mm. And for those families, eventually, um, there's going to be a conversation about care needs, and within the home. There's a lot that can be done to help somebody live with dementia, um, whether it's in the form of different prompts around the house. And again, I wish probably we'd had this conversation some years ago. But for somebody who's at that stage now, what advice would you be giving? So touching base with the dementia advisor is definitely um, something I'd advise people to do. It's in every county. If you go onto the Understand Together um, website, you can you can get what supports are in your county. Um, and the Alzheimer.ie website, same thing. You, you can filter by county and it will bring up the supports. Link in with them. Um, 
Then the memory technology resource rooms, they're another thing that are great um, to link in with. They have that kind of signage. They go through people's day-to-day living. It's an OT that will do it. Um, And they have simplified things. uh, Small things like it's a simplified remote control. So someone who might stop watching TV because they can't work the control, um, the remote control that, that that would be given or advised by the memory resource centre is volume up, volume down, channel up, channel down, power on, power off. Mm. So it's just making everyday life simpler um, for people living with dementia and their families caring for them. I came across a great music player. It's a big bright red one and there's a hinge that you lift up the door to activate the music and there's a big button, single button, and you press it to skip on to the next song. So, again, music evocative for any of us and particularly for somebody with dementia could be useful in rekindling memories. Absolutely. And reminiscence therapy is a big thing, um, playing music that people would have known years and years ago um, is really good for for working the brain. Um, It can be a great pastime to sit down with someone if you don't know what to do or, you know, what what conversation to have with them, you know, by playing a song that they might like. You can see that it invokes life in them and that can be a good conversation starter or just to sit and have a little sing-song and old photographs to recall memories, um, conversation starters, all that kind of stuff. And they have all them resources to help you incorporate that um, in those memory technology resource centres. A really difficult conversation can come when a person perhaps needs more full-time, long-term care outside of the family home in, let's say, a nursing home setting. And you can have different family members impacted uniquely. Uh, Some are at a distance, some are next door, some are living in the house. Everybody has an opinion. Not everybody will agree. What's your advice about navigating that? So, again, going back to the Dementia Advisor Service, you know, we understand there's dynamics in every family. Every journey is different. Um, in an ideal world, we all want to be able to do our best for our loved ones, but sometimes it just doesn't work out that way and you have to have balance in life. And we'll always tell our carers, you know, you have to look after yourself first. You have to fill own, your own cup before you can help others. Um, we have our family care training that people can do face-to-face or online and register for that on alzheimer.ie. And that goes through different aspects of caring for someone with dementia that can make the process a bit clearer. Um, we're there to support families. We can do house calls. Um, we can do over the phone. It's private and confidential. And we can sit with families to work out these kind of things. Um, again, signpost them to who we might need to bring in um, to make the process a bit easier. And we have lots of resources around putting people into a nursing home, you know, what what you need to think about. There's the fair deal process that people have to go through. So there's a lot involved in this, but um, the Dementia Advisor Service is kind of a one-stop shop for signposting to all them different areas. Mm. And we can help families to kind of work out. the. It's a, it's a tough time to go through and work that all out. 
And sometimes communication is easier said than done. We end up tiptoeing around it, perhaps for the person themselves, maybe even avoiding using the word dementia because it can be a very scary mm-hmm. term. Mm-hmm. And equally then for ourselves, uh, it is a very, when I say ourselves, for the family members looking on as we are with my dad, mm-hmm. it's a very strange kind of grief where the person you knew has changed and they're still physically there and that takes a bit of getting used to and you wonder as well how best to to treat them you, you know you don't want to be let's say at the earlier stage say ah dad that's your dementia at you again if he's forgetting yeah, something yeah. so it's about being kind to all interests am I making sense? Yeah and um, patience comes into play mm. you know people have to have a lot of patience but um, the family care training is really good for that To it goes through communication it goes through you're yourself as a carer like it's you're in a, a different role to being a son or a daughter or a spouse um, it's about you know respect for that person you know respecting that they're still the same person seeing them as the person and not mm. not, not, dementia. not the dementia yeah yeah, you know, asking how you can help because they're going through their own journey as well, um, getting this diagnosis. And it's really frustrating for some people. Um, and, you know, making it an environment for everyone that it's it's empowering. And, uh, you know, it's, it, 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 sometimes by talking about it, breaking the stigma, we can help each other. And that's the whole idea of this um, campaign is to build awareness and understanding of dementia encouraging people to talk about it, encouraging people if you know someone who has a diagnosis or, you know, how you can help um, help them keep up their uh, hobbies and interests, stop social isolation because some people just stay at home and, and don't want to go out. They're afraid of people asking them questions or, you know, some people are afraid to ask the questions mm-hmm. themselves. Um, and it's just there's so many things in our community now that we can get involved in that don't cost a lot or, you know, it doesn't take up that much time in the week. It could be as simple as just calling into someone for a cup of tea if you know they're there at home all day on their own for a chat. And, you know, that could be the the only contact they've had in the whole day. And, and it's, it's about knowing as well where the services are. Um, you mentioned to me previously that there are support groups and yes. somebody in your role is able to signpost that, that the support group is on Tuesday evening in such and such a place. And yeah. That's why yeah. reaching out to the Alzheimer's Society can be a great one-stop shop for information. Yeah, and on on our, our website, alzheimer.ie, but also the understandtogether.ie website, there is, you can put in your county and you will get a list. You will get the name of the dementia advisor, but you get all dementia-specific services in your county in one section. Um, and to link in with them, and you know, people say, oh, I don't want to go to that, I don't want to. They're actually lovely services to get involved with. I know feedback from families that have been reluctant to maybe get involved or don't have the time, but once they do, they say it was a, a game process. Mm. And they're not on that frequently, but when they are on, um, 
it, it's a good way of sitting, people sitting down and chatting and just knowing you're not alone in the journey and it's creating more awareness. We have it in places. We run our support group in a library and the library are so dementia friendly and this is the whole thing of our community being dementia friendly. If you see that symptom displayed, um, you know, it, 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 it allows people to keep their hobbies up. It allows them not to feel isolated. It allows them to go step outside and feel comfortable in knowing that they're protected by the community. If, so they can talk about having dementia or be supported mm. in us. I wish I could tell you why it's hard to talk about for families and family members. And I don't want to give you platitudes uh, either. Um, sometimes it's hard to even go out to the nursing home and to sit in silence. Such a contrast Dad would have talked and once upon a time. Don't know where I got it from. Um, and now it's a radically different experience being around him. And, and sometimes I don't want to face that. Um, and I suppose the consolation for me is you said earlier that I'm not alone, that there can be uh, a response that tries to avoid it. And, and some people are better at dealing with it than others. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it's about connecting with the person of who the, the person you knew, reinvoking things in them that maybe just are lying a bit dormant. It's their hobbies, their interests. Um, you know, a reminiscence box is a good thing to set mm. up for somebody. Uh, Digital photo frame? Oh, digital photo frame with old photos in it, conversation starter, you know, you can say to them, oh my God, you were, what age were you in that? Tell me about that time. Or, um, But again, like we look at the person as a whole, we can set up in the Alzheimer's Society, we have um, a thing that's called This Is Me and it's, a more, it's to enable us to have a person-centred approach. So we get to know that everything about that person. And that's what we work on, on the day-to-day things of how we can get someone involved you know communication doesn't have to be speech it can be a smile while listening to one of their favorite songs it can be tapping their hands on the table or swaying to the music i mean if you can get that connection with someone it's amazing it's so powerful through music joanne i'm grateful for your time anybody wishing to connect in understandtogether.ie Indeed, the Alzheimer's Society is online as well and I'm grateful. Thank you very much for taking our call. Now, let's go to your comments. So, from Colm in Roscommon. Your lovely mum has dementia, has had it for about four years and we only discovered she had it just before our father died, he says. She has been getting worse over the last couple of months and I really wish I could have had one more day with her before she got to the point she's at now to tell her how much we love her and how much she means to us. And I know that feeling. I really do. Hilda says, I know it's a narrow topic that we're talking about here, but I do want to remind people that if you think somebody is suddenly and rapidly developing symptoms of dementia, get the heart checked out as well. It can be a sign of heart disease. 
And indeed, to be fair, doctors will be very thorough and diligent and they look into all manner of causes. Sometimes um, if somebody's becoming dehydrated, confusion can set in if they have a urinary tract infection. Again, later in life, it can throw people. So we will be, uh, no doubt, hearing more about the HSE Understand Together campaign over the coming weeks and lots of information and great resources available to you. On Get Active with Midlands 103, the marathon journey has taught us a lot about what to do and what not to do and the ups and downs that you go through when training from couch to marathon in just 18 weeks. And the question has yet to be answered as to whether that is possible. Peter Dunn from Midlands 103's Breakfast has been hoping for some light at the end of his injury tunnel. But let's catch up with him and others from Midlands 103 who are coming along for the ride. Get active with Midlands 183, powered by HearMed Healthcare in the heart of Tullamore. Here when you need us. HearMed.ie. We're approaching halfway through our training plan on Get Active with Midlands 103, and I'm nowhere near where I should be in terms of marathon training. And I can't run for the last two weeks, but this week. I went the alternative route and spent all the time I should be on the road in the gym, on the cross trainer and on the exercise bike as well. And anything that just doesn't put pressure on this calf muscle that's been the bane of my life in recent weeks. And I'm trying to build muscle elsewhere as well. And I find when you're injured, there is a huge psychological side to it that you just can't explain unless you've been through it. But if you listen back to my chat with ultramarathon runner Shane Dunphy on episode seven of our podcast series, he gets it. I was after doing my stretches Peter went out to get a bottle of water and it was a lovely sunny day it was during the summer and a runner went straight past the window and it just the first thing thought that I should be there that yeah. should be me you just hit the nail on the head there it's a psychological blow when you're injured to see other people run yeah, and you see loads of them I know injured. you see them everywhere yeah. To be honest, I'm really getting worried about this injury. So I'll pop into Cahill Egan in Physio Central Tullamore again to see how it's coming on. But Carl reckons we have to upgrade it from a grade one to grade two calf injury, which is a little more severe and could see me off the road for about five or six weeks, which worries me a lot because if you've only five weeks running training and all going well, you get over your injury and nothing else happens, you'll get six weeks running before the marathon. And it doesn't really sound possible to me. But Cahill assures me, as long as I can keep up a good level of cardio, I should be able to stay relatively on track. So that's positive enough. Plus, he told me not to be worrying. He's going to do all the worrying for me. So thanks for that, Cahill. You're going to lose an awful lot of sleep. Don't worry. Be happy. Don't worry. Be happy now. One of the important parts of preparing for a marathon is your nutrition. So I got in touch with Ruth Kavanagh from EduFit in Port Arlington. And one of the many things I wanted to know was, what should you consume before and after a workout? So nutrition has such an important role in terms of getting yourself ready, both physically and mentally, for any type of workout that you do. So in terms of marathon training, there's kind of two main key points. So it's to fuel with carbohydrates, making sure that you're getting enough before, during and after to fuel the workout and then to hydrate with your fluids because we know that 
if we're sweating, as we're working out, that we can easily become dehydrated. And we know that that can negatively impact our performance. So when we're dehydrated, you know, we feel increased tiredness, fatigue. It just makes everything much more difficult. So they'd be kind of the two main key points. Now, if you're doing like strength training, which is so important as well uh, as you're training for your marathon nutrition, Mm -hmm. then, of course, we have to focus on protein as well. To hear more about how much you should be consuming, what you should drink and much, much more, check out the latest Get Active podcast on Midlands103.com or wherever you get your podcast, just search Get Active with Midlands 103. The plan is to also run the Mullingar Half Marathon on St Patrick's Day and I've roped in a few friends in Midlands 103 to do it. So let's check in with our Head of Sport, David Hollywood. Well, Peter, uh, training's going pretty decent at the moment and that's mainly because I got the fear of God into me. I am running in the National Masters Cross Country Championships uh, this weekend. So uh, the long runs have been done uh, pretty religiously over the course of the last couple of weeks uh, managed to get out and uh, put together about 20 odd kilometres on Sunday there and ran into a a thorn bush as well for my troubles Uh, but yeah uh, competing against the over 35s in the National Cross Country Championships this weekend I'll let you know how I get on hope that calf is on the mend The National Masters well done David Hollywood best of luck on Sunday can't wait to hear how you get on just mind them old thorn bushes and you'll be fine now let's check in with Midlands 1 Three's Morris Fitzgerald. I'm about halfway through the training plan I set up for myself some weeks ago, uh, trying to maintain the balance of a speed session, tempo run, long slow run, plus one or two recovery runs each week, while still keeping injury free, of course. Um, yeah, look onwards and upwards. Uh, we're getting there. Won't feel it now, so check in again soon. Hi Peter, Ronan Berry here, keeping the training going as well. Predominantly gym work, if I must admit. But I threw the runners on last weekend just to try and stretch the legs a little bit. So I did a nice little 5k, uh, well under 25 minutes, so happy out with that. Of course, my training was always just to show a bit of solidarity. I wasn't really training with a particular event in mind. But by God, that has changed because my darling wife has just signed me up for an adventure race in Donegal in June. It involves cycling, kayaking and running. And it's Donegal. It ain't exactly the flat midlands we're used to. It's Donegal. I don't know what I'm up to. Anyway, there's a target. Oh, well done, Ronan. Fair play to you. Welcome to our world. It's all downhill from here. And uphill and downhill and uphill and downhill. Now let's check in with Midlands Today's Will Faulkner. Hey, Peter. So colleague and the physio tells me I have gluteal tendinopathy, so I need to work on the muscles in the rear end. Lots of stretching, lots of lunging, doing the pelvic thrusts with the kettlebells. I'll have an arse like a Kardashian by the time this is over. But the good news is I'm up to 14 kilometres in the last few days. Next run aiming for 16k. So fingers crossed we'll get there eventually. <laughs> An arse like a Kardashian. Thanks for that, Will. <laughs> as you know, we're doing this for a good cause. We're raising as much as we can for Barristown Children's Charity. And we're asking you to please give what you can by clicking on midlands103.com and you'll find Get Active with Midlands 103. Click on that. It'll take you to our I Donate page or you'll find a post pinned to the top of our Facebook page and that'll take you directly to our I Donate page either. You can check out the podcast for the full episode, which can be found in the podcast section on midlands103.com or wherever you get your podcast. You can just search Get Active with Midlands 103. Get Active.
Active with Midlands 183. Powered by HearMed Healthcare in the heart of Tullamore. Here when you need us. HearMed.ie Peter Dunn, who is the man who coaxed us all into doing the, well, half marathon in my case. And ironically, he's the one who has been injured most of all. So we hope he recovers. We will not slag him in any way for being the youngest of the group and obviously the least capable. Thank you to everybody who has been so kind and getting in touch concerning dementia and the story I shared earlier about my dad and many others sharing their story. Sean in Edenderry finds it very disappointing that the medications to treat dementia are not more effective. He says it's eight years since his wife was diagnosed. He goes to see her every day in Ophalia House, helps with her evening tea and just to show a little bit of kindness generally. And he says the care in Ophalia House is above and beyond. And you're absolutely right on that, Sean. I know many of the staff in there, they are fantastic, as they are in Escarie in my own family's case and in so many other nursing homes. But yes, medicine is making strides, but it has a long way to go. Also to Jimmy in Balnagore, thank you for your call, Jimmy. Much appreciated. And uh, to everybody else who got in touch, we will come back to the topic again. The Gartha Fitness Test, would you be able to pass it? And what is involved? And no doubt the Gartha, very anxious to recruit for many reasons, but also they've raised the age of eligibility to tempt more and more people to take on the challenge. JJ Clark is an assistant producer with the Irish Independent. Morning, JJ. Morning, Well, How are you doing? I'm very well. Are you a bit of a sporty spice? Yeah, I, I, I would consider myself reasonably fit, um, but uh, 10 days out from the actual test, so 10 days before the 6th of February yesterday, um, was the first time I started training because I had been out with a lower back injury for the previous six months. So I was out of shape uh, going into this and, and with 10 days to train. So so probably not a sporty spice for the the test itself. And, okay, maybe not as fit as you wanted to be, but you would be starting from a decent base. Would that be fair? Yeah, yeah. But, I, I mean, if you, you know, say your your local GA team or, you know, your, your five-a-side or you go to the gym regularly, you're on the same you know, footing as, as, as I would be going into, uh, into the test which happened yesterday. So the question is, how difficult did it prove to be? Maybe take us through it. Okay, so first of all, uh, you get a debriefing and you start thinking to yourself, like, why did I sign up for this? And they start getting the butterflies uh, with the uh, sergeant who's there at the training college in Temple Moor. And then you do, first off, you do the bleep test and it's, I, I suppose it's one of the worst things in the world is it, they split it, the the group, which was about 16 of us, uh, all journalists, uh, into two. And so we had the pleasure of watching how hard the bleep test was uh, from, you know, from the, the bleach receipts uh, and just, just waiting in, in anticipation, which was worse. And then when I did the bleep test, uh, I found it was tough, but uh, not, you know, impossible. And... Uh, just in terms of, uh, I suppose the um, the challenge was just moderating myself because I shot out of the traps way too early, 
And then uh, once I got the, you know, once I got to about level six, then I started breathing really heavily, mm. really rapidly. And uh, and I was, I found it quite tough, but uh, I was alongside a, a guy who was 52 uh, and was in the uh, Garda Press office. And it was me and him for the last three or four levels and I had to get to level eight. Uh, and so about 8.8, which is uh, where I started like thinking, oh God, I, you know, this is as much as I can, I can manage. And You're then right. I got uh, two more lengths, you know, and then I was, I was out, but he kept going for another four or five, oh, no. you know, levels. Oh no, and I, I'm reading into your voice and how it sounds. You're not 52, are you, JJ? No, I'm not. And uh, I mean, uh, just uh, the, the, I suppose the, the embarrassment of, of getting, you know, getting your ha- your ass handed to you by a, uh, by a senior citizen uh, is uh, sort of funny. Hang on, that 52 is not a senior citizen. Well. (laughs) Okay. So you were humbled anyway, shall we say, by the 52-year-old. Yes, I was certainly aware of of my limitations in in the fitness uh, department. So what came next? Uh, Then we we, we filed out and uh, we were brought into sort of a you know, a vacant uh, squash course and uh, we had to do our sit-ups and our push-ups. And so uh, the sit-ups came first, which you had to do 35 in a minute. And uh, uh, this isn't tricky because the sit-ups, it's almost like cheating for me. Uh, the sit-ups are anchored at the ankle, so you have a bar. So you can leverage your all your weight off this bar. Uh, ah. Speed is the main thing. So you, you're just trying to throw your, your body backwards towards the mat as fast as you can. But it's not very taxing. Um, so I, I found this easy. I'd like, once I, it would I be if plan, you had a belly in the middle. I presume yeah, you don't. Yeah, I mean, we, like, I mean, as much as anyone does, uh, like, it, it's more about how much force you can generate through your legs. It's not... Um, it's not about actual strength in your core. It might be a little bit, hmm. um, but it's about you're hooking your feet under a bar. So uh, it's not as challenging as as it would be if you if you didn't have any yeah, anchor. Yeah, I uh, hear you. So the load were. isn't in your abdomen. The load is further no, down. No, 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 not at all. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, getting that done in in a minute is is no problem. And then uh, on top of that, you you go straight in, which is kind of challenging, uh, straight into push-ups. Um, but now, you don't way, have are to these go... proper push-ups? Because we all have a tendency to cheat and not bring our chest down to tip the floor. Right. So uh, this is the thing. So uh, the sergeant, Pat Curran, who, who was taking us through every exercise, and they sort of they give you exactly what's required at, at each stage. Uh, and he, he was making the point that you don't have to, um, you don't have to go chest to ground, which for me is, you know, because they said it was creating too much work. You just have to go to 90 degree angle. So you're just you're just making it so that there's there's almost a T shape uh, with your arms and there's 90 degrees between your your forearm and your arm, and so 25 isn't isn't really challenging. You can lock your arms out at the at the apex of the movement and you can you can rest. It, you you know so it, it, that wasn't that wasn't challenging at all. Uh, and then you get what is a 40 minute break before you move on to 
the obstacle course. Um, and so the obstacle course is, it, it's a, a number of things. So you're, you have to get around this obstacle course under three minutes and 20 seconds. Um, and that is, you know, dodging around cones without knocking them over, walking along a balance beam, like L-shaped balance beam and not falling off. Uh, dragging a 45 kilogram mannequin uh, 10 feet uh, and then lifting a tire from one point to another, uh, vaulting a gate and then going up and down stairs. Good luck. And I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's in, to, to be fair, it simulates that kind of tussle and, you know, if you had a, you know, a domestic situation or anything like that, uh, Gardy, it does quite, you know, simulate, simulate quite well what would be expected on a 12-hour shift, but but on on some level it is just it's not challenging enough. And to be fair, they say they're not testing, you know, elite fitness. They're test, they're testing for average fitness, so that it's they're just trying to you know establish do you have the foundational fitness requirements to you know matriculate and get to the guards. If so come this way you can also fail three times you know you get three three passes at, at what is you know something that isn't that challenging mm. that like an 18 year old who plays for their school in whatever sport uh they do would probably get around this no bother um yeah but i suppose and, it's more to determine if an older applicant is suitable if they have a base to build on I don't know. No, I, I, I like it's in. If you had someone who was, you know, really unfit, you know, they, they've had the same course for uh, since I think it's either 2004 or 2007, and they said that fail rates have gone up. So it's not, it's not that it's gotten harder. It's just that maybe our sedentary lives have, you know, mm. you know, cost us our our general fitness, and you, you know, if. If you think or about what to is get you back for your age, Barb, earlier, has it got anything to do with the millennial or Gen Z not being as fit as their their predecessors? Well, I I would absolutely agree. Um, you know, I I think you know, with that, will you're probably onto something. Like, and I I don't want to get into the sort of finger wagging of you know, oh, it wasn't the same in my day, uh, but it. People aren't as fit as they were 20 years ago, and probably people aren't as fit 20 years ago as they were 20 years prior. Um, but you, you kind of want someone in a you know authoritative position like the guards to be fit, mm. fit and healthy, to be able to pursue you know someone who's stolen your your bag, or you know if there's you know an aggressive situation happening that they be able to subdue a person readily, and like a fitter person is able to, you know, it doesn't cost them as much physically sure. to engage in that. Here's a key question a lot of people want the answer to. Once you pass, is that it forevermore? Or are right. they tested within the force once they're recruited? So uh, I, I put this to the sergeant uh, at the debriefing before I, I did the fitness test yesterday morning. And uh, so he said... it. it it, it was compared to, you know, doing the driving tests. Once you're in, you're in. Done. 
you know. Uh, if you want to join the Public Order Unit or the ERU, which is our equivalent of SWAT, uh, then you you have to go through additional testing, and that's really challenging. Like, for example, the Public Order, order Unit uh, has to do, like, runs in, like, full riot gear with shields raised mm. and, like, super challenging kind of scenarios. But, like, I mean, you know, apples and oranges compared to the Garda, you know, basic fitness test. So having done this test, you would probably make it tougher. And would you introduce it at intervals for people who are within the force? Or does that perhaps risk putting people off? Well, well, it shouldn't. Uh, unless you want to sit behind a desk, I, th- I think, it. you know, there should be a sort of, like the three uh, Garda recruits that I uh, talked to, you know, they were fit, looked fit, you know, and we're sort of, you know, there should be a kind of pride in, you know, how thoroughly you take and how seriously you take your fitness. Uh, and it's not to say that, you know, that's the only skill, because I think a guard's main skill is an ability to de-escalate a situation, which is verbal skills. But fitness, you know, if you've just chased after someone and then they're in a, you know, an argumentative mood, then, you know, if you're fit, you're able to use your brain more. If you're unfit, you're going to be lazy and you're going to be more likely to escalate the situation rather than de-escalate. Fascinating. JJ, look forward to um, catching up again and you can read more in the Irish Independent in the meantime. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Will. JJ Clark, now still on the agenda this morning. Some good news from Athlone Town Shopping Centre, the largest shopping centre in the Midlands, says it has recorded massive footfall in 2023 and they have big plans for the year ahead. This on a day when Irish Water, or Ishgairan as it's now known, announces 700 new jobs. Also, a warning, if you are planning to switch your telephone provider, it doesn't always run smoothly, as one listener in the Midlands has found out to his cost. Now, when you call, assuming you're still connected, 0818 300 103 is my number. You can text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. I want you to meet a man who has had a remarkable health journey and it all started with a pain in his foot. And you may know Pat Kelly if you're from Ballycumber or Pulla, if you met him in the Bridge House in Heine's, or indeed, as I did in Scalies in Tullamore, <laughs> many, many moons ago. Good morning. Good morning, Will. How are you? I'm in great form and he's here as well with his friend Sinead Lynham. Morning, Sinead. Morning, Will. Thanks for having us. This pain in the foot, tell us more. It started with a bang. I was dancing with my daughter at Christmas and hit it off a wooden table. And I thought nothing of it. I just thought it was a bang. And I went to the doctor and he said, there's nothing we can do for your toe, it'll heal back. Mm. And it persisted and continued. So I let it go and I just kind of, oh, it'll be grand, it'll be grand. And when Sandra, my wife, insisted I go to the doctor, uh, he insisted I go for an x-ray. So I went for an x-ray in April and they thought it was just too much calcium built around the bone. Treated me for that, sent me home, but it never cleared and my toe had swelled to about three times its size. Wow. And then they sent me for a biopsy. And the biopsy came back in... August, I went on holidays and when I came back from holidays they checked me straight into Tullamore and was like 
there's something a bit more sinister than mm. we mm. initially imagined. And we're going back, is it to 2019? 2019, mm. September 2019. So the 30th of September 2019, they came in and said that it was uh, cancer. They didn't know what sort, but cancer of the bone. So from there, then they transferred me up to Dublin because they didn't know much about it in Tullamore to Kappa. And they thought it was um, Ewing sarcoma, which is a child's cancer, which I thought was really rare for someone of my age. So then they started investigating and then decided we're going to take half the leg to stop it progressing. Wow. But luckily, and for me, thank God, I had a brilliant professor up there, Professor O'Toole, and he started intense chemo, um, six rounds, and reduced it and only took half my foot. So some consolation, yeah, absolutely. But but you say that with a smile and oh, you're seeing the positive. Positive, because to me, I was losing half the leg and it was brilliant. Everything was working. The chemo was working. And then I got 12 months cancer free. And Ewing sarcoma is one of those things that it just keeps coming back. So they couldn't do anymore. So then they put me on more chemo. And where did it resurface? Resurfaced in the lungs. Right. And then went to my hips and then started radium again, more chemo and cleared it for, I'd say, about six months. And I went off everything. I was great then, absolutely great. And then it came back again in the lungs. So then this this year, was it last? Last uh, July, maybe. Last July, we decided to go on a family holiday because everything was great. And I kind of everything had settled down and they were really happy with everything. And um, when I came home, I was sick, sick in holidays, but my coordination was off. But my wife then got on to the doctors and he said, I think, you, do you need a scan? But I was like, no, I'm grand. In my own head, I was great. But obviously my coordination was grand. I couldn't put things in my mouth. I couldn't drive. I couldn't, well, I could it drive. It certainly cause for alarm yeah, anyway. For her, but not mm. for me. So then when they done a um, scan, when I came home, um, I had two brain tumours. I fell and... Um, ended up in Beaumont in for six weeks. So when they investigated up there, they were like, we can rem- remove one. But I had got so bad at that stage that um, I had to be led everywhere, walk, and I had to be... Even my eyesight had kind of gone bad. But still in my own brain, I was I was good. Didn't realise how bad it was. But thankfully in Beaumont, they removed the first tumour, and that was the size of a piece. And they said, we can't go near the second one. But when they did, look was, I suppose, on my side, that I had released enough pressure that they were able to remove the second one Brilliant. so six days later then I had the second operation and um, removed the second one successfully and then I'd done three months of radiation in James's and now I'm back in Vincent's on chemo so this thing is like a boomerang that nobody wants to catch it no. just keeps coming <laughs> back and back and back, back. and back but um, how's the head through all of this I mean as in the spirits and the emotional side thankfully I have such a great team around me up in Dublin and family around me too that's I'm really good you know that's the way I'd always be kind of a positive person anyway because I'd always be like tomorrow's going to be if I was sick today tomorrow will be a better Mm -hmm. day or tomorrow will be better and they'll tell you up there positivity kind of keeps you going get up and do a bit or walk around the ward or do a small bit and I've always felt like that you know that's the way so yeah thankfully grace you know and it's not the first brush with cancer that your family has had um, no, my wife back in 2010 got colon cancer um, and then she in 2017 was diagnosed with a brachia 2 gene so she's 
I, I suppose maybe she's my inspiration the fact like she was so positive through the whole thing and then she just went and had everything removed and touch wood thank God she's super she's doing brilliant so yeah it touched us twice yeah but it's not easy you put the sunny side out um, there's still unfortunately bills to be paid <laughs> the world doesn't stop yes and for you through all of this treatment have you been able to work? No, I've in my own headset. I've always felt I'm going to go back to work, even though they're telling me in Dublin you can't work. Do you know that's way? But I've always had this mentality: I will go back to work. But after the two tumours, I can't go back. I'm not physically. I'm not able. Do you know mm. that's the way? In my own head, I am able, but physically, I'm not. I'd love to, but I'm just. I can't, you know, so... And no. you were so well-known. Uh, again, I, I met you yes. through Scally's, walked down, got my whatever pulled pork bap every day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you made a painstakingly. But you were always interacting with people. I, I'm, oh, I love people. I love getting out there and chatting and today flies and have a bit of banter with everyone and, yeah, today the day goes quick and people are so good. You know, I love chatting and mixing with people. And you're still smiling, which yeah, is great. <laughs> Sinead, how has this journey looked through your eyes as somebody a little bit removed? Um, I suppose as as family, um, we're obviously, we're all heartbroken to be, to, that he's going through it because as you just said, he's, Patrick's so well got and he's, um, we're all so fond of him. But at the same time, and you can see this yourself, he is, as a family again, we look on with absolute admiration for him. I, I, you know, for the last five years, he's never, he's never, he always, he just gets on with it. He doesn't get down. He's, you message him, you talk to him. He always sees the bright side of it and there's always a positive to be got from it. Um, I don't think lots of us, lots of us wouldn't be able to, wouldn't be able to, but certainly as as, as a family member, we are um, hugely proud of him and just um, a lot to be learned from how he's dealt with it, I think, mm. for, for all of us too, yeah. And kind of puts our minor problems in context as well, you know. My son gives out when the iPad is dead and needs to recharge it. You know, stuff like that really doesn't matter in the grand scheme. What are you planning to try and help? And I know the community is coming behind you in a big way. And even Simon Casey gave it a mention some weeks ago when he was here. Yeah, so I suppose maybe four or five months ago, um, people kind of said, look, maybe we need to kind of come together and do something for, for the family, for Pat and Sandra and, and the kids. And I know Patrick doesn't mind me saying this, but he was a little bit reluctant, you know, um, because the focus would be on him. Um, but so a small group of us got together, Pat's siblings, an aunt of ours, Sandra's, some of Sandra's family and a lot of musicians who would be good friends with Pat because they're all local, Simon and Joe Flynn and Michael Lynham, best foot forward. Uh, we decided to hold a benefit night. Uh, the benefit night takes place on the 17th of February. And, and we know, as you also alluded to, Patrick's a very popular guy. So we knew that the, not everybody would be able to go to the benefit night. So we set up a separate I Donate page because we know and, and we've seen since that the amount of kindness and generosity out there towards him has been unbelievable. Um, but it's probably testament to him and the person that he is. So we have the I Donate page up and running and the benefit night then has a fantastic lineup of musicians. So, as you mentioned, Simon Casey, Best Foot Forward, Rul Boulia, uh, John Malloy, all good friends of Pat um, and the family and that's on the 17th it starts at 8 o'clock there are very few tickets left as you can imagine there's Great. such a demand for good it. complaint yeah absolutely, absolutely yeah and we've just been again does he hold a tune himself 
I don't think anyone in our family well, do. My dream, claim was, to. my dream has always been to be a good singer, but my wife said you'd clear a room quicker than anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you stay seated on I'd the night. I stay seated, absolutely, <laughs> on the night, yeah, for sure. And as Sinead said, I just want to say I'm so thankful and I've been blown away by the amount of generosity from people and family and friends and work colleagues and people that I don't even know that have contacted me that have um, contributed to the I Donate page. It's, it's been overwhelming now. I, I just cannot believe it myself. Well, look, know. if it gives you a little bit of comfort and a boost. And a bo- absolutely. It's been, um, it's been amazing, honestly. Do you know, and as Sinead said, I was very reluctant. But then when we went to um, Dublin last November and they were like, um, to me... Um, we there's only a, a certain limit of time I've left as in regard there's only so much more they can do um, I didn't thought of my wife and my hmm. two children I'd like just for them to be okay do you know that's the way I saw I agreed then to okay sure we can go ahead and do it Do you dwell on that much? Um, I did and then I thought to myself I have to be positive because I lost my mother when I was 22 so I'd like that I had a great family of aunts and uncles and cousins around who were the greatest and I take great comfort in the fact of they'll be the same for my own family mm. do you know that's why mm. I have great brothers and sisters and aunts and family yeah absolutely so I take comfort in that too yeah one step at a time though Once, that's the way I look at it. one step at it nobody knows you could be here in 12 months 2 years 10 years I'm hoping but their diagnosis maybe a year or two so yes but listen I, my dream as she said to me when I was up there a couple of months ago is get to 50 and have a big party so I'm 48 <laughs> this year so that's the dream. I'm not organising that one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. For anybody who wants to support Pat Kelly, how can they do so, Sinead? Yeah, so we have um, we have a Facebook page, the Pat Kelly and Benefit, uh, Pat Kelly and Family Benefit Night, and the link to the I Donate page is on that as well, which is the Pat Kelly and Be- uh, Family Benefit Fund. And look again, as Pat said, just completely blown away by the amount of support from individuals, from groups in the community in in Ballycumber and Pulla, and even Patrick's former employer Scallys yes. all of this week. Every coffee bought, they're donating one euro from every coffee ah, bought for a full brilliant, week. Absolutely. So just be, again, people's kindness, support, generosity has just been unbelievable. And I, I suppose, I would say as a family member and a friend of him, he, he's yeah, he's certainly he's all worth it, you know, for for him, and um, he deserves it and more and more. Keep smiling. Thanks very much. We will. Pat Kelly and Sinead Lynham. A few people have asked where Brian Clunan is today and I should have mentioned earlier that unfortunately he can't be with us this week. A rather embarrassing issue has surfaced and the rash is back and I saw him with the creams and just not, not a good look. But anyway, he will be back next Wednesday, 20 past 10, for more DIY. In this hour, the European Commission has proposed that greenhouse gas emissions be cut by 90% between now and 2040. 90%. So what does that mean for all sectors of the economy, but in particular agriculture? And if you're a farmer and you're feeling, oh, not again, the news might not be as bad as you're expecting. More on that at a quarter to 12. And on a positive as well, one of the Midlands' largest shopping centres has recorded consistent increases in footfall over recent years. So they have big plans for 2024. That's in around 10 minutes' time. But first, a salutary lesson if you are thinking of changing your telephone provider 
it doesn't always go as smoothly as it should. So I want you to meet Dermot from here in the Midlands. Morning, Dermot. Morning, Will. Tell us what's happened in your case. Uh, basically, Will, on the 26th of January, I agreed to switch from Air to Vodafone, uh, landline, broadband and some mobile phones. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the day I was told, I got an email, uh, a text and an email to say that an engineer would be here on Tuesday, the 6th of February, to do the changeover. An engineer from yeah, which of the companies? From, sorry, from Vodafone okay. would be here on t- to do the changeover. So uh, 6th of February morning, was yesterday? Yeah. Yesterday morning we get up. Uh, we were told basically to be at home between 8.30 and 1.30 to allow access. Uh, when we get up yesterday morning, our phone line is gone. We have no broadband. And, you know, I thought, nothing, I, I thought first of all, it might be a fault in the line. And I rang her to find out, no, no, you've been cut off at Vodafone's instructions from air. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I said, OK, we'll wait till the engineer arrives. Gets to two o'clock, no sign of an engineer. Uh, so I ring Vodafone, to which they tell me, oh, that your appointment was rescheduled. Nobody told me. No, and obviously nobody told the internal department that uh, instructed air to cut you off either. Yes, and that is. Now, I was on the phone to Vodafone for maybe just over half an hour I timed it. And eventually, you know, I got packed from one to another and um, and then the line just dropped. Uh, They have a a thing, a department called Open Air who were responsible apparently for the appointments and Mm. The lady there told me that at 11.45 yesterday, they were informed that this was rescheduled. That's all she knew. Uh, so I went back again. I rang back again. I spoke to another nice woman, in fairness, and I told her my plight. And she said, look, there's nothing I can do. I don't have the authority to answer. You know, so I asked, could somebody authority come back? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Go up the they food said, chain. She said, I can't guarantee you when that would happen that she would pass the message up. But it could take days before they'd contact me. Now, I had explained to her that as part of our system here, my elderly mother-in-law lives with us. Hmm. She'd be 97 next month. And she has one of those, you know, the little watches with the panic button alarms? Yes. Yes. So, I mean, we can leave her watching television, not have to be, you know, looking at her all of the time. And if she if anything happens, she pushes her button and it goes, works through the phone line. And we get alerted, and so does the the, comp- the monitoring company, who will ring back to see is everything okay. But without a phone connection, uh, this isn't working, I assume. I don't have it exactly, and that is what I see as the most serious issue. Now, my wife also works from home, but she's had to drive to work, and we'll have to drive to work all of this week now because we've no broadband. And I got absolutely no joy whatsoever yesterday from Vodafone. Um, just basically told us it's been rescheduled. Didn't tell me who or why. And didn't tell me, you know, ironically, I get a text at 8.30 this morning telling me that the engineer will be here on Friday. But nobody has come back and I'm left with basically for, because we definitely went to the fourth day at least. It's the lack of joined up thinking that must be particularly frustrating. If they knew that they couldn't attend with the engineer, then they shouldn't have instructed Vodafone to, or sorry, Air, to disconnect your original connection. Exactly. I mean, my f- mobile phones, our mobile phones here were moving as well. They're still with air. I did ring air yesterday. I still have four mobiles on, on the on the account. My two daughters, my wife and my own. But the uh, 
the rest of it is gone. And according to Vodafone, they said they are digitally connected to to my phone, but you know, it doesn't work. So I, you know, now they did say it was a two part process, and I said, but why did you ask me to stay at home mm. to let, to give access to an engineer? And I didn't really get an answer to that, to be honest. Yeah, waste of a day. So you've the inconvenience, yeah. you've time, uh, you're at the loss of the service. I, I I want to tell you, we did contact Vodafone and many okay. companies will have a media department and they will have contact details for that department so that queries such as this can be easily answered. In the case of Vodafone, those details are not online. We, much like yourself, have submitted a query into a queue and they will answer it who knows when. But when they do, I will tell you what the outcome is. Um, I'm assuming, at the very least, you want some sort of a gesture for all of this inconvenience. I don't know if I want a gesture. I mean, uh, personally, I don't want a gesture. Um, but, uh, you know, the, this level of service just isn't good enough. And it's the lack of communication. Anything can happen. I accept that fully. And that the engineer might not have been able to make it here yesterday. But I should have been informed. Mm. I shouldn't have sat here for five hours yesterday waiting for them to arrive. No, I hear your frustration. And and you're being very tolerant, actually. Uh, People will maybe get sick, they'll ring in, they'll tell the boss I can't make it today, but there should be an automatic system then that swings in to ensuring customers are informed. Uh, Yeah, and if they had just rang me yesterday or or sent me a text, which is how they, they made the appointment, uh, and said, listen, unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances, whatever, our engineer, that would be fine. It's the absolute lack of communication mm. and the fact then that we're left without services and no explanation. You know, I, I don't have an explanation. I'm assuming that the engineer, there's an issue there, but I have no idea. Yeah, I, I think the other lesson is it's not just the original complaint. It's how complaints are handled that can make a very big difference to customers and satisfaction and whether you feel you made a mistake in making the move. Um, Let's see what they come back with. But thank you very much for highlighting it. No problem. Thanks. Thanks a million. That's Dermot here in the Midlands. And if you've had a similar experience, and assuming you're connected, you can text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. And, you know, sometimes companies can put things right. And if it is handled properly, then there is a chance to repair the damage and even emerge with a stronger customer relationship. But when you just close down and you're not connected from one department to another internally and a customer feels bounced from Billy to Jack, it's so frustrating. And I'm sure you can identify with that. Now, next on Midlands 103... In 15 minutes, the European Commission recommending that greenhouse gas emissions be cut by 90% between now and 2040, which is going to test politics. It's going to test certainly many sectors. What about agriculture, which for years has felt perhaps like the bold child in the class and not deservedly so? That's in 15 minutes. Let's turn our attention to retail. Two stories for you. The first, unfortunately, not as good as the second. So IKEA had planned a new outlet in Portleash. And we learned 
in September that those plans were very much in doubt when it could not find an outlet in the town for this option. It said it had explored suitable commercial rental options in Port Leash, but after exhausting the possibilities, it started looking at other regions for this new facility. So at Port Leash's loss, it seems Carlo will gain, as IKEA in a statement today confirms it will have its fifth plan and order point opening in the Fair Green shopping centre in Carlo later this year, which will drive footfall to not just that shopping centre, but to Carlo town in general. And unfortunately, that could have been at Port Leash's benefit had the commercial property market been in a position to accommodate it. But such it is. Anyway, on to a more positive story. And you will recall the very quiet years of COVID and the lockdowns and how retailers in particular felt the pinch of those restrictions. Athlone Town Centre, which is the region's largest shopping centre, is reporting consistent increases in footfall in the years since, including in 2023, which, as you know, was not an easy time for many of us with the cost of living pressures. Let's find out more from marketing manager Shirley Delahunt. Morning, Shirley. Good morning, Will. How are you? Very well, thank you. Can you flesh out that picture for us? I can indeed. Yeah, I suppose, look, you, you mentioned the COVID years. I think they're, they're years that we'd all, particularly in retail, prefer to forget about now at this stage. Um, you know, it, they, they certainly were very barren times, particularly in the retail environment. But since that, I suppose we have seen um, a fairly consistent return to recovery in the retail sector here in Athlone Town Centre. Um, and it is lovely to have that good news to share um, with with yourself and with with your listeners, um, certainly last year we would have been um, recording uh, footfall figures that are returning close to pre-COVID levels. We're within touching distance, I suppose, of what we were in 2019. Um, so last year we would have seen footfall in the region of 4.1 million um, through Athlone Town Centre's doors throughout the year in 2023, which would have seen a which would have been an eight percent increase on the previous year of 2022 and you're going back to sort of 52% in 2021 when mm. we were coming out of COVID restrictions. So certainly, you know, it's, it's tracking very positively and it's lovely to see that sort of return to form of the retail sector in, in, in Athlone. Well, I still remember the opening morning for the centre. I'm fairly oh, sure it was 2007, <laughs> give or take. That's so. it, bang on. November 2007, you're dead right, Well, When was the high water mark for footfall set? So I suppose we opened the centre, if you think back to when we opened in 2007, I suppose we opened just in time for for the the, um, bottom to fall out of the the retail environment Mm. with with everything that went on in the year subsequent. So I suppose we, while we opened in 2007, really had to do a reset during the, the start of the recovery years after that. So, you know, 2019 would have been when we were really at sort of full flight here in the centre and trading quite well. So it's really, really encouraging that we're seeing that we're within touching distance of those figures again. Um, and, you know, certainly the, the new additions that we have had in, in the last year with the likes of Sports Direct taking a huge new anchor store with us here in the centre has really, really assisted in that in terms of diversifying the retail offering that we have. 
Um, but it also challenges the narrative that can be negative at times. Obviously, in the years since COVID, e-commerce mm-hmm, really, mm-hmm. really kicked up a gear. But this proves people still love that tactile experience of going out and shopping in, in person. Absolutely, no, and we can certainly see that here. And I think probably if there's anything positive in retail that came out of COVID, it was people sort of realising the value of what we have on our doorstep when we couldn't travel, when we couldn't do, when we couldn't go. You know, you, you, you really, I suppose, you picked up what was in your own local environment an awful lot more than maybe you had been doing. And certainly we were seeing that. You know, we have brands here in the in the centre that you, you don't have the benefit of having in the likes of major urban centres like Galway. So we've got the likes of, of Zara, H&M, who are huge draws for us. And I mean, I think people just have realised the benefit of having these major international high street brands on their doorstep. We're very, very fortunate to have those here in Athlone. But you always have to keep evolving and your competition Mm -hmm. will never stand still either. There are lots of great shopping centres around the Midlands. So what are you adding uh, in the time ahead to make sure you don't lose that edge? Absolutely. Well, I suppose for us, well, it's all about creating the environment that our, our shoppers enjoy shopping in and engaging with. Um, so I suppose we, in addition to having introduced major new brands such as Sports Direct, such as Rituals in, in the last uh, six or eight months, you know, we're, we're constantly looking forward. We're trying to listen to what our customers want. So, you know, what, what is it that they would like to see in the centre? And I suppose we're trying to pitch ourselves accordingly then and go after the, 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 the any particular brands that retail, or sorry, that our customers may like to see within the centre. But we're also, I suppose, about creating an experience. As I said, you know, and as you alluded to, customers enjoy that that sort of experience of shopping. And we have to, I suppose, all the time look to try and enhance that as much as we can, whether that be, you know, creating a, a pleasant shopping environment, um, looking at our environmental footprint, because that's a hugely important element to our customers now at this stage as well, um, and looking at the experience, the shopping experience here in the centre. So adding lots of different family events, lots of different fashion events, um, entertainment, that sort of thing, that all add to the shopping experience in the centre. Well, may 2024 break all previous records onwards and upwards and continue Well, here's success. hoping, Will. And I mean, certainly that wouldn't be possible without, I suppose, the support of your listeners, Will, and without the support of the, the wider Midlands community who have sort of shopped with their feet over the last number of years, who have, you know, consistently supported the centre and supported, I suppose, the hundreds and hundreds of local jobs that are available, you know, and, and are supported by the retailers here in the centre as well. So it's, it's, it's a credit to the people of the Midlands that we are doing as well as we're doing and hopefully we'll continue in that, that upwards trend. Shirley Delahunt, thank you for your time. Not at all, Well, Lovely to speak to you. I mentioned earlier the dilemma of Dermot here in the Midlands who switched from Air to Vodafone and so far has been more than 24 hours disconnected when the engineer didn't show up. And if you think that's bad, a business has contacted us to say they made the reverse transition from Vodafone to Air on the 27th of November. And they had the same number for 30 years. But since the 27th of November, it hasn't been in operation. Wow. So whatever about a 
a little bit of confusion and some bad organisation and Europe without a phone for perhaps a couple of days, as Dermot is, and shouldn't be, but these things sometimes happen. To be without a phone for months when you're in business? Come on. More on that, hopefully tomorrow. Now, let's conclude by taking a look at new targets which, if embraced by the European Union, will see net greenhouse gas emissions cut by 90% by the year 2040. And let's, just for today, focus on agriculture, which many in the sector would say has been a whipping boy for the green agenda, and obviously there are those who would dispute that. But from an agricultural perspective, how much more will be expected under this new target set, well, proposed by the European Commission, yet to be embraced by the European Union. Pat O'Toole is political correspondent with the Irish Farmers Journal. Morning, Pat. Good morning. How are things, Will? Very well, thank you. I know there's a huge amount of nervousness in farming whenever they hear about further and future policy, but what's the outlook for farming under these uh, rather challenging goals? I'll be honest, um, while the um, announcement yesterday has been looked on as a victory for protesting farmers, I'm not sure that much will change. And the reason I'm saying that is there are so many different targets that are being placed. Some of them are aspirational, some of them are mandatory. And I suppose the mandatory targets are the ones we really have to look at. So um, what um, was being talked about yesterday is the EU Commission's plan for 2040 and how they will evaluate the requirement for reduction in agricultural non-CO2 emissions. Specifically, they're talking about methane there. I think it's commonly known at this stage that a main source of methane emissions is from uh, uh, animals, uh, especially cows. Uh, so... Um, the uh, the target is the, the target year is 2040. The target reduction, as you say, is 90 percent. And what they've done is they've taken out the section referring to a mandatory cut of 30 percent in non-CO2 emissions for the agricultural sector. That does not mean a whole lot in itself, because if you take farming in Ireland, um, Ireland has signed up to a mandatory 51 percent reduction in total GHG emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 uh, compared to a base year of 2018. There are six sectoral targets um, and uh, I suppose the, the one farmers are most closely looking at is for agriculture. There is a mandatory 25% reduction required on farming in 2030 compared to 2018 and under the Climate Action Plan. This is legally binding and uh, farmers are working towards that on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. So. Uh, these 2040 targets are outside of that and furthermore included in the climate action plan is the uh, acknowledgement that that's uh, the 2030 targets are only intermediary the targets we are working towards is zero emissions by 2050 um, and again this 2040 plan that they're talking about in Brussels is an intermediate target towards that goal so zero emissions is extremely ambitious Frankly, we don't have the technology to look after ourselves on this planet. Um, uh, humanity can't manage at zero emissions. We're going to have to change how we live to, to do that. But that is a target that's in place. And the 2040 target, well, 
being looked at as a victory for farmers, especially in tandem with another announcement that was made by the Commission yesterday around pesticide usage, actually will make no discernible difference to Irish farmers on a day-to-day basis. Let's hear from Francie Gorman, who is the shiny new president of the Irish Farmers Association, and invariably politics will come into this, where they will present it as... Uh, aligning with their interests, whichever political persuasion they come from. In his case, he says the anger of farmers, as demonstrated by those protests across the EU last week, is finally being noticed. Finally, our voice has been heard. The frustrations out there at farm level are absolutely palpable. You can see it across Europe. You could see it last week, last Thursday night, with the number of farmers that turned up to, you know, vent their solidarity and their frustration with what was going on in Europe. If we don't produce food in this country, and I think this point is lost, it's going to be produced somewhere else with a higher carbon footprint that will do more damage to the planet. So he's framing that as a victory. You're not convinced. Well, I think what he's saying is that finally uh, there, there's an acknowledgement of the anger of farmers and that there's a response. But um, what, I suppose what I'm saying is that the response won't have much to say. Like it, It's a step in the right direction from a farmer's perspective in that um, it's an acknowledgement that the targets that are being placed in front of them are very onerous. And maybe not piling one target on top of another. We need to walk before we can run. And I think uh, every Ireland's not unique. Every country has a climate action plan in place for 2030. Every country is expected to reduce its emissions by half over the 2018 target. So th- that's operating um, like I say, on a day-to-day basis on farms. The sustainable use regulation is an interesting one. So this is governing pesticide usage. And in Ireland, because of our uh, humid climate, uh, fungicides are extremely essential for potatoes, for, for grain, for, for um, beans, and beet and beans. And if, if we're going to transition to a more plant-based diet, it's very hard to envisage doing that without fungicides. So the European Commission had posted uh, proposed a drastic reduction in pesticide usage by 2030. That's now off the table. And the reason that that has been taken off the table by the Commission is they couldn't get it through the Parliament. And they also couldn't change it to get it through the Parliament because the people that are opposing it, um, it's what Mairead McGuinness, the European Commissioner from Ireland, described as a coalition of the unwilling. You have people, Greens and people on the left, who rejected it as being not ambitious enough with too low a target. And you had then MEPs on the right who rejected it as being too hard on farmers and asking for too much and too ambitious. So if the Commission were to come back with a watered-down proposal, it will be rejected by the Greens in, in greater numbers. Um, and if it's, they come back with a beefed-up proposal, it will be rejected by the right and the centre. So they can't win. So they've withdrawn it um, partly because of an acknowledgement that farmers are, are angry and, and see this as another impingement on uh, their uh, their viability, but also because politically they cannot get it through and it's been kicked down the road past the elections in June to the uh, next parliament and the next commission. That was going to be my question, whether it was the incoming MEPs who will be elected in June who will make this decision or will it be the outgoing parliament which will not necessarily be re-elected. It's the former. It, it, it absolutely is. And um, polling done last week uh, all across the European Union would suggest we will get a more fractured, um, more disjointed parliament next time around. For most of Ireland's 50 years in the European Union, the, there's been a sort of a, 
a, a duopoly with the European People's Party, which Ursula von der Leyen is a member of and Fine Gael are members of, uh, which is slightly right of centre. They call themselves Christian Democrats and the Socialists, who the Labour Party would have been in. Between them, they've held a majority of the Parliament and a, a significant working majority. So once they came to an agreement on something, it, they got it through the Parliament. That no longer is the case. We have a very fractured Parliament and even when the EPP and the Socialists agree on something, it can be voted down. So uh, it's quite difficult now uh, the parliamentary agenda and this multi-party system that we have with seven different political groupings uh, representing 28 member states, remember ranging from Ireland up to the Baltic states like Latvia and Lithuania and down to Greece. It's a very diverse European Union, very diverse political aims and a very diverse parliament. So it's only going to get harder for the Commission to get its proposals through. And I suppose the final point on that is that the new Commission will be selected by the governments of the day. Mm. And we have an awful lot of national elections coming up this year, so we could have a very radically different Commission uh, selected by a very different group of Irish governments come the end of the year. Yes, but the national elections tend to focus on the domestic issues. The European elections, certainly here in Ireland, we've tended to engage less with them. Turnout tends to be lower. But is it conceivable that the climate economy and the the impact of these emissions targets, that that could well be a point of debate, a point of contention as June approaches, that uh, politicians will be obliged to take positions by the electorate in a way that perhaps they wouldn't have had before? Yes, I think so. I think like we saw the Greens' early electoral breakthroughs were in European elections. Um, and it, you see a younger vote and a, 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 more, um, a more progressive vote typically in European elections than we do in national elections. So that's one uh, that's one aspect. The other aspect is that farmers will be out in force. They, they, uh, every um, potential MEP, every candidate will be brought before the farm organisations um, at public hostings and, and asked for their position on the various policy issues. So you're right, it will be. But we're also seeing these issues now play out in national elections. We saw the Dutch election, the Italian election and the Polish elections in the last 12 months where those issues were front and centre. What was interesting, Poland had a right-wing government, has shifted to the left. The Dutch and the Italians had left-wing governments and shifted sharply to the right. So what we're seeing in, in, in many countries across Europe is the government of the day being turfed out. Um, so um, it's very volatile, it really is. People are not comfortable with where we are. They're very unsettled. Farmers too. I mean, farmers uh, don't... Uh, deny climate change in the main. Farmers accept the reality of climate change. They're living with it every day on their farms. The, the vastly changed weather patterns have made farming different and more difficult in many cases. So it's not that they're climate change deniers, but what they're saying is they should not be asked to carry an unfair burden. And we must remember as a European Union that food production is a, a core a function of society along with environmental enhancement and climate mitigation. Well indeed we've only looked at the agricultural perspective today transport, industry, energy the list will go on as to how different sectors will be affected and whether they feel they're taking on a fair or an unfair burden and that may well frame the narrative coming into these elections Pat, thank you very much for taking our call this morning. You're very welcome. Pat O'Toole is political correspondent with the Irish Farmers Journal, where you can read more on that European Commission proposal. Hilda says, Will, zero emissions 
also known as zero emissions here, while we ignore the emissions we directly cause elsewhere. I suppose electric cars being maybe the classic example of that, where you measure only at the tailpipe, not necessarily where the power comes from, not necessarily the cobalt or the lithium ion that is mined elsewhere in the world. We have a system of carbon accounting which isn't perfect. Is there a better way? That's the real challenge. Now, lots of messages of love for Pat, who was with us earlier, Pat Kelly and his cancer battle, and Christine and Lee are wishing you all the best, Pat. We also had uh, a message uh, from your dad, from Fossey, who wishes you every success and strength in the time ahead. And a lot of people uh, echoing those comments and we want to fully get behind the fundraiser and you're just searching for Pat Kelly on iDonate if you wish to make a contribution. Brenda says he was a pure inspiration to listen to and hello as well to Pat and Sinead from Carol in Pulla. Those are just some of the messages coming to hand at the moment. That's where we leave it today. Thank you, Sinead, for putting it all together. And thank you for keeping me company over the last three hours. We'll be back tomorrow morning, God willing, from nine.